were a part of when I was born. And I was um, uh, actually baby Jesus. I know that is far-fetched, I know. But uh, I, was, I was baby Jesus in the uh, Christmas uh, uh, cantata, whatever you call it, uh, at, at Brother Paul's church where he was the pastor when I was two months old. So I have been uh, you know, on a journey uh, with him. In fact, outside of my dad, uh, probably the most influential in, in our family's life. He is the most influential in our family's life, uh, my parents specifically, and their, and their journey um, in ministry and, and in their uh, striving to know Christ in a very personal way. I say that because, as I've shared with you, uh, one of the, the most instrumental times in my life was when I was about Grayson's age. My son, he's in third grade. I was actually a year younger than him. Um, my parents went through a very difficult time. They could have easily become bitter. And my dad was just telling me this week that it was Brother Paul's encouragement that uh, during that difficult season that um, allowed or, or, or encouraged his heart to not become bitter. And that, in, in my opinion, is the, the, the pivotal part in my life, um, in my walk with the Lord and desire to, to see him uh, be the Lord of my life and ultimately lead to ministry. So uh, I say all of that just to say this. I can't overstate the influence that Brother Paul has had in my life and more specifically in my parents' life as they have influenced us. And so as a result, I am really excited about this morning and the rest of, of uh, our journey through the study of the tabernacle. So if you'll give him a wellspring, a welcome this morning, we'll welcome Brother Paul. Thank you, Scott. Well, I will take just a personal word and say this to you. It's such a delight to be here. I, uh, <clears throat> I had forgotten what he just told you, but it was, in fact, the reality of that Christmas, I think of 1990, was that there? 1980, I don't mean 1990. You're not that young. <laughs> 1980, I held him for the first time, two months old in my arms. Now, what does that say about me? <laughs> so I'll put it all to rest. I'm 77. I know I look it. I know I, I know I probably walk like it, all that kind of stuff. But to be candid with you, I neither think that way nor feel 77 years of age. But it's a delight to be here at 77. In fact, it's a delight to be anywhere at 77. <laughs> well, let me tell you why this has already been. We'll get this. I'm not sure if I've got it too close for me or whatever, but we'll get it arranged there. Um, Tell you why this has been so much fun. First reason is being with Scott and his family and a meal last night. And, uh, and, but the second reason is to be here this morning. Um, I have traveled, pastored 40 years and traveled uh, since 1996 across the convention, Southern Baptist Convention, and across the country, honestly. I've been several other places overseas preaching. But rarely do I experience, particularly on a Sunday morning, what we've experienced this morning. Phil, i got to tell you, uh, you have uh, poured my cup plumb full. Just as a vessel from the Lord, he knows that, we know that. But what a tremendous time of praise and worship. I walked in yesterday afternoon just to make sure the equipment all worked and that, that kind of stuff. And... Uh, I just had a pleasant feeling about it. 
And I walked in this morning and I realized why. I have a pleasant feeling about it because I think I'll switch out here. I don't know whether it's the backdrop that's all the expensive wood on the back here. I don't know exactly what it is. I'll tell you one of the things I think it is is everybody's close. Have you ever been into a church building? Now, you don't go to church. You never go to church. You understand that, don't you? You are the church going to a building. And have you ever gone to a building where the church gathers and everybody's so far back? I mean, the front row is 40 feet back, and you feel like you're disconnected. And uh, I walked in here last yesterday and then again this morning and realized this is a comfortable uh, place <laughs> to gather as the people of God. And then to hear you sing, uh, and I've got to tell you, my oldest granddaughter, Dr. Sari, uh, uh, Terry Sanchez, is professor of flute at the University of Texas at Arlington. And young lady, when you started playing and praise group began to lead us, I felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, it was just wonderful. Now, this has been a fun time. So if you don't come back at all the rest of tonight and tomorrow, that's okay. Uh, Pastor and I'll be here and I'll teach him. And uh, we're going to enjoy this time together, okay? So while you're turning to Exodus chapter 25 in your Bibles, let me ask you this question. How many of you have really never heard a series of studies or messages on the tabernacle in the wilderness? If you never have, would you raise your hand? Let me see who I'm talking to here. Okay. All right. That's normal, honestly, because the tabernacle is heard uh, uh, about very, very seldom. And um, I think that's probably a major problem. Now, you look at it here, that's the tabernacle. Doesn't look like much, does it? I mean, my goodness, it's uh, all these hundreds and hundreds of years in history. It's just a tent in the, the wilderness. Um, doesn't look like much, be candid with it. And frankly, uh, church life of this day and age, really just doesn't think much about the tabernacle. And I think that's really a tragedy, and I'll tell you why. Did you know that you have, in picture form, in this building, uh, the story of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is an Old Testament type or symbol of who Jesus Christ really is. And that's why it's going to be so significant for us to study this week, because we're going to be studying about the object of our faith experience. In other words, we're going to find out what Jesus is like. We know him personally. We know him in the new pages of the New Covenant, the New Testament. 
But these are the roots of the old covenant that has produced the blossom of the new covenant. And we're going to understand afresh and anew who the Lord Jesus really is. And I'll tell you another reason I think it's a shame that we don't talk more about the tabernacle in our day. And that's because, did you know in the Bible, God took 50 chapters to talk about this building. Right there. 50 chapters to talk about the tabernacle. That's the equivalent to the entire book of Genesis, which is made up of 50 chapters. Now, he only took three chapters to talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth. 50 chapters to talk about the tabernacle. Now, somebody's making a mistake. Either we talk too much about creationism and too little about the tabernacle, or God said too much about the tabernacle and too little about creationism. Now, who do you think is making a mistake? <laughs> well, I've been a Christian long enough to know that he doesn't and I do, right? And it really is a mistake to not talk about the tabernacle a great deal, and I'll tell you why. Because in the tabernacle, you have in picture form every major doctrine in the New Covenant. Every major doctrine in the New Testament, we're going to be looking at as many of them as we can in these two days of conference. This morning, tonight, two sessions, and tomorrow night, the concluding session. For example, we're going to study the doctrine of blood redemption. And I'm going to show you why the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no possibility of a remission of sin. Now, the significance of the blood is not so much here where the lamb was slain as it is here where the blood was taken on the day of atonement. This is the Holy of Holies. This is the holy place that's a two-compartment building. And here is the altar where the lamb was slain. And on the Day of Atonement, the blood was taken into the Holy of Holies. And I'm going to show you why it is impossible for sin to be forgiven without the shedding of blood. Now somebody's going to say, oh, Brother Paul, you know, Scott, you know that we're taught the truth of the blood, and you're right. However, driving here from Norman yesterday... I passed a number of churches coming through Tulsa, coming through Joplin, major denominations who have rejected the idea of blood totally. They've stricken it from their hymn books. They've stricken it from their prayer books. And when a reporter asked one of these denominational meetings in Denver when they were gathered for their annual convocation, why are you taking out the word blood? And the answer was, well, Americans are too sophisticated to talk about blood in the present day. And you know, the tragedy is, if we ever get too sophisticated to talk about the blood of the Lamb, we will be too sophisticated for our own good. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no possibility of the remission of sin is as real and true today as it was when it was recorded in the book of Hebrews, that very statement. And so we're going to study the doctrine of blood redemption. We're going to study the doctrine of the confession of sins. Most of us are familiar with 1 John 1, 9. That if we're willing to confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And so on. Let me ask you a question. How many of you believe when you became a Christian, all your sin, past, present, future, was forgiven 
in Christ. Raise your hand if you believe that with me. I do. Well, if that's true, that all of our sin, past, present, future, was forgiven in Christ, the moment of salvation, then why 1 John 1, 9? If, and that's a conditional phrase, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And the answer is, now listen carefully, there's a world of difference in the scripture between the word sin, singular, and the word sins, plural. And the confession of sins, plural, has nothing to do with salvation. Do you know that no one has to confess their sins, plural, in order to become a Christian? Well, now you do have to repent of your sin, singular, and have faith in Christ as Lord and Savior in order to become a Christian. But the confession of sins, plural, is not the same thing as the repentance of sin, or the confession of sins, plural. Sin, singular, sins, plural, totally different issues. In fact, the confession of sins is for the believer only. And the result of the confession of sins is for something that a lost person can never experience. And do you know where we find the difference in this thing of sin singular and sins plural in the tabernacle in the wilderness? We're going to study the doctrine of blood redemption, the doctrine of confession of sins, plural. We're going to study what it means to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now somebody's going to say, oh, Brother Paul, I thought that being filled with the Spirit was a thing that Pentecostal people talked about. Well, uh, I thank God if they do. And they do. And I thank God for them. Because the Bible talks about it. Do not be drunk with wine where it is excess, but do be filled with the Spirit. And by the way, those are what we call imperatives in the Greek language. It means commands. In other words, the Scripture commands us don't get drunk. Right? Now, what if a pastor showed up drunk? Something would happen, wouldn't it? Why are we not concerned with do be filled with the Spirit? Same imperative. It's a command. Why are we not just as disturbed about not walking in the Spirit as we are walking under the control of alcohol? Well, the answer is, as somebody said to me one time, you know, Brother Paul, it's a whole lot easier to tell some, whether somebody's drunk than it is where they're walking in the Spirit. And I think that's a, a fair assessment. It's not easy to know what it means. What is being filled with the Spirit? We're going to talk about it this week. And you know where we're going to find it? In the tabernacle in the wilderness. The doctrine of blood redemption, the doctrine of the confession of sins, the doctrine of walking in the fullness of the Spirit. We're even going to take a brief look at the doctrine of eternal security. You see, I'm one of these weird ducks who believes that our relationship with God is eternal in nature. I'm one of these guys they used to make jokes about, you know, when they say, oh, you believe in one saved, always saved, and so you just go out and do anything you want to do. Yeah, I've never understood that because I go out and do anything I want to do anyway. In fact, I do a whole lot of things I don't want to do. <laughs> I do believe in a, a relationship with Christ is eternal, but the ability to enjoy and experience the reality of that relationship is a very fragile thing.
And we're going to see this week in the tabernacle in the wilderness what it means to walk in the fullness of the Spirit and experience the reality of who Christ is as my life. And by the way, the experiencing of Christ as your life is not an issue when you gather on Sunday morning. It's an issue of 24-7 as you walk in your life indwelt by the one who is himself life and life everlasting. You see, we're going to be studying what you might call theology. Now, don't get scared. We're not going to get bogged down in it, you know. Uh, theology simply means like uh, biology, uh, the study of, you know. Uh, theology, theos being God, is the study of God. And that's what we're doing when we look at the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, uh, with this understanding, uh, what I want you to see is Verse 8, Exodus 25, I read it to you a moment ago. Let them make me a sanctuary. Now, here's what God told, that, uh, told Moses. Moses, I want you to take an offering. Exodus 25, verse 1. Of every man that gives it willingly with you your heart, you shall take your offering. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and so on and so forth, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and all that kind of stuff. And in verse 8, it says this. And let them make me a sanctuary that, and the little word that is maybe the most important word in that verse. It's what we call in the Hebrew a purpose clause. For the purpose of, or so that, or in order that, let them make me a sanctuary for the purpose of, now look at it, my dwelling among them. Ladies and gentlemen, what you're looking at here is the first house God ever lived in on this earth. Now, that's God's house. Oh, it's the first one. It was never intended to be the final one. But it is the first one. And when Moses built the tabernacle, God said, I'm going to live among you. So the question that pops into my mind is how would you know if he's at home there? Now, if you were to come to my home in Norman, Oklahoma, there's a way you'd know whether I was at home or not. You know what it would be? If you were to come in, uh, the driveway, get out of your car, come up to the front door, ring the doorbell, or knock on the door. And if I were to open the door and you see me there, and I see you and say, oh, come on in, Scott. Good to see you and your family. And you'd know I was at home in my house if you saw me there. Now, did you know the exact same thing is true for God himself. The way you knew he was at home in the tabernacle is you saw him there. Now wait a minute. Somebody's going to say, Brother Paul, isn't it true that 
No man has seen God at any time. Isn't that what the scripture says? And the answer is, yes, that's what the scripture says. No man has seen God at any time. But what about Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, did Isaiah not see the Lord or did he make a mistake? Well, the answer is he saw the Lord. Did you know that when the Bible says no man has seen God at any time, it doesn't mean that men haven't seen God throughout history. If anything, it means they haven't seen all of God that there is or maybe they haven't seen him face to face, perhaps as uh, except with one or two exceptions, they were hidden in the cliff of the rock in order for God to pass by. But the point is, Men have seen God throughout human history. Do you remember this guy? That's Moses himself. He's the one that was told to build the tabernacle. You know his story. Found in the bulrushes. Raised in Egypt. Chose to be a Hebrew instead of an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew and he embraced that calling. Killed that Egyptian. Had to flee for 40 years. 40 years later, God's ready to send him back to deliver the children of Israel. And the scripture says in Exodus 3, listen to it now, there was a bush on fire. Now that's not so strange. Moses had seen many bushes. What was different about this one? It was not being consumed. And as he approached the bush, the scripture says, God spoke to Moses from in the midst of the burning bush. God was in the middle of the burning bush. Now remember this, it's going to be important. That bush was on fire, and God was in the center of that bush and said, Moses, take the shoes off your feet. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Moses saw the Lord and was called to be a deliverer. Let me tell you about another guy that saw the Lord. His name is Ezekiel. I'm not going to have you turn because it would take too long for a Sunday morning session, but in Ezekiel chapter 1, the Bible says, Ezekiel, by the way, was a... a a priest who had been in the temple in Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. Oh, it was awful. It had been destroyed. And he was carried off into Babylon. He's a POW now, prisoner of war in Babylon. And verse 1 of Ezekiel 1 says, I was down by the river Kibar. Now, I know that's speaking geographically, but that's speaking emotionally. He was really down. He didn't understand why God let all this happen to the children of Israel. All of this thing with Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't understand it. And, you know, I, I know he was a Baptist because he just got upset that God let that happen to him after all he'd done serving him. <laughs> he was down to the river Kibar, and listen to what he said. I saw visions of God. Now, you know what Ezekiel saw? The first thing he saw was the throne. Now, in the Bible, the throne represents power or authority, like a king sitting on his throne. And what God said to Ezekiel was, see this throne? That's me. I'm the one who's powerful here. In other words, I know you're looking at Nebuchadnezzar and you think he's done you a disservice and all of that, but don't worry, I'm still in charge even if it looks like a mess. And isn't it good to know that even today, when everything looks like a mess and the Democrats and the Republicans, nobody can fix it. Everybody's upset about it. Isn't it good to know that God's still on his throne? Amen. 
whether people know it or not. And what God was saying to Ezekiel is, Ezekiel, this is me. I'm on my throne. The throne represents the power of God. But notice the second thing he saw was the rainbow. And the rainbow represents the promises of God. See, God had promised that he was going to make a great nation out of Israel. Like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. It sure didn't look like it now. Nebuchadnezzar's situation. 70 years in Babylon. It looked awful. And Ezekiel just didn't understand it. And so God showed him a rainbow and said, Ezekiel, that's me. That represents his promises. I'm faithful to my promises. I'm the one who's in power here and control. And I'm faithful to every word I've ever given. Ladies and gentlemen, can I declare to you, according to the authority of the word of God, God is still on his throne and he's still going to fulfill every promise he's ever made. But the third thing that Ezekiel saw was the fire, the brilliance, the burning. The Jews called it Shekinah. We call it Shekinah glory. It is the manifested presence of God. So the rainbow represented the power of God, uh, the promises of God. The throne represented the power of God. And the fire represented the presence of God. Now go back to that bush in Moses. When God called Moses. And that bush was burning and was not consumed. You know why? Because it wasn't the kind of fire that you build on a riverbank to cook your fish that you caught. It was the presence of God. And when Ezekiel down by the river saw God, he saw a throne and a rainbow and a glory, a fire. And Ezekiel 1, he calls it brilliance, burning, amber, all of those words. But it represents the Shekinah glory. That's what we call it. The Jews called it Shekinah. We call it Shekinah glory, the presence of God. And what God was saying is, I want you to build me a house. The tabernacle in the wilderness. And one day a year, now watch this, on the day of atonement, the high priest would come through the one gate, kill the lamb, and would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now you're going to see this before the conference is over. And the fire of God would descend into the Holy of Holies. When they traveled those 40 years in the wilderness, they were covered by a cloud by day to protect them from the sun and a pillar of fire at night to protect them from the desert cold. And what that cloud and what that fire was was the presence of God. Now they had a house. They would pitch it when, they would, when the cloud would stop. They would pitch the tabernacle. And on that particular day, the Day of Atonement, they would bring that lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood into the Holy of Holies. And God was dwelling in his first house one day a year. Now, nobody else had the presence of God. Only Israel. Nobody else, no other nation had God dwelling among them. Only Israel. And it was only in the tabernacle. And it was only one day a year. Did you know they used this building for 400 years? 40 years in the wilderness. Then under uh, Joshua, 
they went into the land of Canaan, they pitched the tabernacle at Gilgal, at Shechem, at Bethel, and finally wound up in the city of the Jebusites. It was renamed Jerusalem. And every year on the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle, for 400 years when the blood was sprinkled, the glory of God would come down. Now the high priest is the only one who got to go into the Holy of Holies. We sang about it a little while ago, Phil. The only one who got to go into the Holy of Holies. And only one day a year on the Day of Atonement, he would take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. You'll see this tonight. And then he would go out. And by the way, when the blood was sprinkled, God's glory, his presence would come down. He would commune with a high priest on that day of atonement. And then Aaron, the first high priest, and later his descendant, would go out and tell all the people of Israel who were camped round about in their tents what God had said. And God was dwelling in the tabernacle one day a year, communicating with the nation of Israel one day a year. Now, 400 years later, they found themselves in a pickle. They'd sinned. They'd become idolaters. By the way, 400 years later, David was king. He wanted to build God a second house. This was a 400-year-old tent. It was in the heart of David to build a second house in which God could dwell. And so the scripture says, now listen to this. Scripture says, David, it's good that it's in your heart, but I can't let you do it. You're a man of war. If you get everything ready, when you're dead and gone, I'll let your son Solomon build me my second house. And that's exactly what happened. David got everything ready. He died. Solomon became king. Solomon took everything that David had prepared, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, listen to this, verse 13, Solomon had the temple finished, and they began to sing songs and, and play instruments, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This was the second house in which God dwelt. Now, this is what we call the temple in Jerusalem. It was even called Solomon's temple. It was built exactly like, I'm sorry, let's go back to this one. I didn't mean it. To miss that one. Let's go back. It was exactly like the tabernacle in that there was the outer court and then the temple itself, two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holy, only the temple was much larger and was not portable. But every year, the high priest, after the temple was built by Solomon, would bring the blood on the Day of Atonement, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and the glory of God would show up, visit with the high priest. And by the way, he had on the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he'd go out and he'd tell all of Israel what God had said. Now follow this carefully. They used the temple in Jerusalem for 400 years. The tabernacle in the wilderness for 400 years. The temple in Jerusalem for 400 years. Only one day a year did the glory come down, God's presence, when the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. But for 400 years in that temple that Solomon built, God met with his people, and then Israel blew it. They went into idolatry. And that's why God let Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy that temple that Solomon had built. 
And that's why he allowed the children of Israel to be carried off into Babylonian captivity. I wish I had time. I don't. So let me just tell you about it instead of turning to it. In Ezekiel chapter 8, there's an interesting story. The scripture says, God took Israel in a trance, a vision. We call it a hallucination. And God took him back to Jerusalem. Now, his body's still in Babylon, but he took him in his spirit back to Jerusalem. And there was the temple, like it was still standing, only there was a hole in the wall. And God said, go in. And so Ezekiel went inside the temple through that hole, but it was the basement of the temple. It was as if you had a full basement under this building. He was in the basement. And on the walls were all kinds of obscene pictures and filthy words and filthy graffiti. King James calls it every kind of vile thing, every kind of creeping thing. In modern language, pornography. And Ezekiel said, what is this? I'm not making this up, says Ezekiel 8. And God said, this is the heart of my people continually. And I'm not interested, God was saying, in how many times you go to a building to meet me if your hearts are filthy and far from me. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, God is not any interested in any number of times we come to a building today either. He's interested in our hearts when we're away from a building, being true to the reality of Christ as our Lord in our life. The scripture says in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, you can read it later at your leisure, the vision was over and God was getting ready to take him back and Ezekiel says, I saw the glory. Now what's the glory? The presence of God. And it went up from me. In other words, God's revealed presence went up from the temple and back into heaven. And Ichabod really was written across Israel. The glory really had departed and God no longer came down. God no longer had a house in which he was dwelling on this earth. And that's the intertestable period between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years. Israel, well, they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls and they reestablished the sacrifice system, but God's glory never came down. And that's the temple that was standing when Jesus was born called Herod's temple because he'd refurbished it. But God never met them there. 400 years they were without a house for God on this earth. So what happens? Luke 2. Now listen carefully to me. This was when Terry was a baby. Baby Jesus in the Christmas story. There were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the, say it. Glory. Glory of the Lord shone around about them. And it like to scared them to death. By the way, this is the same glory that Ezekiel saw Ascend into heaven. Now descending to this earth. Why? He's got another house. Where? His name is Jesus. He that has seen me has seen the Father. God was in Christ living among men. 
Do you understand that? Now, not one day a week like in the tabernacle, not one day a week, a year, I mean, in like in the temple, not one day a year, but every day of every week of every month for 33 years, God was in Christ. All at once, we understand Jesus is his house. This was only a foretelling of who Jesus is. By the way, if you were to see this building from the outside, it looks terrible. Just goat skins and badger skins and all that kind of stuff. Nothing pretty. They made their shoes out of that stuff. But if you went inside, you'll see this later tonight. If you went inside the tabernacle, it was gold. It was silver. It was light. It was beauty. Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand? Jesus will never be attractive from the outside to anybody in this world. It takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of faith. And when you walk into Jesus by faith, you see a glory that you never imagined. You see a beauty beyond comprehension. That's what it is to be in Christ. But on the outside, he doesn't look like much to the natural lost eye. Neither did the tabernacle. For 33 years, God was in Christ living among men. But he died. He really did. Crucified. He was buried. Three days in the grave. On the third day, he was raised from the dead for our justification. Now watch. Forty days later, after he had proven himself alive among his people, they stood and they watched him ascend and the angels said, don't be afraid, he's coming back one day. Just as you see him go, you'll see him return. And today, Jesus, we sang about it a moment ago, is seated at the mercy seat in heaven. Because you see, the tabernacle in the wilderness is a picture of everything that is real in heaven. And I promise you, from this moment on in this Bible conference, I'm not wearing a coat. <laughs> I just don't want to take the time to stop and take it off right now. But are you following me? I'm telling you, Jesus is seated, making intercession for us. He's even sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Now the question is, where's God's house today? Granted, tabernacle one day a year, temple in Jerusalem one day a year, the Lord Jesus every day for 33 years God was in Christ living among men. What's the house in which he lives now? Now you see why he said, tell your disciples go and tarry in Jerusalem because on that day of the fulfillment of the feast of the Pentecost, they were in that umber, that little embryonic church was in that upper room and there was a the sound of the rushing mighty wind and the Fires sat on their heads. That's happened on the day of Pentecost. Now my question is, if that fire sat on their heads on the day of Pentecost, why wasn't their hair burned? Because it was the same fire that didn't burn up a bush. It was the same fire that didn't consume the high priest on the day of atonement. It wasn't a fire like we think of it. It was the presence of God. Second voice is, where did those tongues of fire go? And the answer is what? Know you not that your body 
It is the temple of the Holy Spirit which you have of God and you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, I got to tell you, that's you and me. We're God's house. We're his final house on this earth among men. And to the degree that people will see that God is real in us, to that degree they'll know he's here and he's at home among men. But they're going to have to be able to see him as he lives in his house. And his house has your name and my name and Pastor Scott's name and name the name of every believer who's trusted Jesus. You are the house in which he's dwelling, Pastor. I think preachers have made a mistake in the years past. I don't think we've done it intentionally, but we've done it. I think we've given the impression that to be a great Christian, you've got to be good-looking, really talented, and really faithful coming to church serving the Lord. There's a good Greek word that covers that kind of theology. Baloney. <laughs> if you have to be good looking to be a great Christian from the looks of this crowd, God's in trouble. <laughs> now you wouldn't know it if I weren't around because we wouldn't have anything to compare it to, but you understand? And I know beautiful people who care less about Jesus, right? And by the way, I know lost people who've got more talent in their little finger than I've got in every fiber in my body. Ladies and gentlemen, being a great Christ Christian isn't, is not being beautiful and talented and coming to a building to serve the Lord. Listen to me. Do you know what the Bible says being a great Christian really is? Here it is. Any old bush will do as long as God is really in the middle of it. Isn't that a great thing, Phil, for you and me and Scott and all you guys? Isn't that great to know that any old bush will do? Because that's all we are, a bunch of bushes. Not much to us. But when the reality of God is in us, living through us, so that people will recognize it's not us. What is it about that guy? What is it about that girl? It's not their looks that don't have it. It's not their talent that don't have much of that. But they seem to relate everything to this Jesus. And they seem to be so committed to his reality. Do you think he's really real? That's what Christianity is. Well, how does that happen? I'm going to tell you tonight. And tomorrow night. In other words, this morning is the introduction. Now tonight we're going to build the first floor, and the second session tonight, the third floor, and tomorrow night, the fourth floor, but it's all one house. It's called who you are and who I am in Christ and Christ in me, and how it all happens. Is that okay? We'll just continue in our second session beginning at 5 this evening. Be a short break after that one. We'll come back in. We're going to be done by about 7 tonight with both sessions. And then tomorrow night at 6.30.
We're going to cap it all off with what the Holy of Holies is all about and who we are new in Christ. And I thank you for the privilege of sharing with you. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed for just a moment. Father, it's such a delight to share. I don't know how many times I've shared this, Lord. I get truly good to be able to look at it again. I pray that you'll never let me speak or teach to other people what doesn't become a thrill and truth in my own life and my own journeys. Now, as we sing this chorus, Father, may you be more real to us in these days than ever before. And with every day of our coming life in this place.